0: Amanda, we have a new podcast. We do on Eater Eater's podcast network, which isn't a thing. But now we have two podcasts. We have
1: two shows.
0: Yeah, uh, the second one is called Start to Sale. It is hosted by Aaron Patinkin and Natasha Case, both very successful food entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to. They came to us and they wanted to do a show about business, yep. food business. What was the original pitch? Like, I, I know I remember you came back. From, God, it
2: was so long ago. Um, you
0: came back from coffee one day, and you were like. <laughs> I just had this talk with this woman, Erin Patinkin, and I was uh, very uh, very inspired. Loved her. Yeah,
3: Yeah, I think there are so many conversations that they have between themselves as entrepreneurs that they felt weren't really being discussed publicly. And there's also this feeling from them that a lot of what gets covered is the very beginning of a business. So... All the grit and hard work that goes into starting something and then the big success stories. But no one's talking about the real life of a business and all of these moments that entrepreneurs share and all the struggles that they share and all of the hard stuff. So they wanted to talk about that.
0: Yeah, things like raising money and mm-hmm. deciding on marketing and getting in trouble and how you get how yourself to fire out. Fire people and yeah. what it's like when this thing goes wrong and how to completely change direction and all that. So we're super excited to have it on the network, and we thought it would be a great idea to just give you the first episode with Christina Tosi, which is awesome.
2: Yeah, she's one of my heroes.
0: So check out the show if you like it. Subscribe to it. It's got its own feed. That's it for us (laughs) for now.
3: (laughs) But we will be back with a regularly scheduled Eater upsell later this week. Food stories. Food stories. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one up Mother Nature for a pure, crisper water. And guess what? They did. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. Welcome to Start to Sail. This is our inaugural episode. I'm Erin Patinkin, CEO of Ovenly. I'm Natasha
1: Case, the CEO and co founder of Coolhouse Ice Cream.
3: You know, this podcast came about because Natasha and I talked all the time about leadership issues, business issues. We listened to business podcasts all the time, and we started to notice that most of those podcasts were hosted by journalists or tech industry people or business psychologists or organizational theorists, and what we thought was missing was a conversation between entrepreneurs, And so as CEOs, we wanted to hear from other CEOs about very specific moments in their business that helped them go from point A to point B.
1: We also really wanted to make sure that as a product of this show, There are some very tangible, actionable skills that listeners could walk away with and actually apply to what they're doing if they're building a business as well. So that's something we're going to dig into with our guests is what's the thing they're most excited to share about what they've learned
3: and can they break it down for our audience? Having a conversation that we would have in our kitchens or at a coffee shop over a cocktail about entrepreneurship, whether or not these microphones were in front of us. Um, so that's what really we really want to do today is is bring you to the inside of what operating a food business is like, and just make as.
1: Uh, accessible as possible some of these things. They don't need to feel intimidating. They're not scary. A lot of these things are common sense. We just need to talk about them. And so we're really here to to share them with you and be transparent.
3: And to show you that everyone's winging it and we're all (laughs) learning. We want people to participate in the conversation too. So if you have questions or comments, DM us on Instagram. Uh, Natasha's at NatashaJCase and I am at Erin Patinkin. We're really excited to have not only the conversation with other CEOs and entrepreneurs, but also with you.
1: Aaron, I think we should share with our guests how we got to know each other as well, because we did meet through our businesses. That's true. I believe it was when Cool House was expanding um, and uh, we were expanding to New York and we were looking for a manufacturing partner for our cookies, for our ice cream sandwiches.
3: And that was me. <laughs> The first time we met each other was in the back of like an architect's office. And I walked in and Natasha basically brought out a bunch of pints of ice cream. I was like, want to try some? And I said, yes.
1: <laughs> I remember that. And I have to say, like, and this is a really special thing in business, you and Agatha were so cool and so open minded. And it was the early days for all of us, but I think it's you know uh, an important kind of instinctual thing is is you were just people that we wanted to work with. You were people that we felt got it and that we would have fun, you know, being in the trenches with. And it's it's so valuable because people do business for people, and you really do have to be all about seeing
3: those relationships. Business is serious, but man, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. So I'm really excited to get some of the fun stories out of the guests that we're going to have on. So for this first episode, we're interviewing Christina Tosi, founder and CEO of Milk Bar. She's a super talented pastry chef, and those talents are innumerable. But I really wanted to highlight her talents as a leader. I feel like they're not covered enough. So we focus largely on Christina's Series A round, or for those who don't know the term, the time she raised a lot of money from institutional investors. While we were talking to her, something that stood out was when
2: she said, it's such a vulnerable place that you forget that your need doesn't eliminate the fact that you are in a position of power. It's not
3: always easy to remember that when you're asking people for cash. Um, Natasha, I'm wondering, what's your thought on the entrepreneur's position of power in financial negotiations with investors? I think that it's all about knowing what is irreplaceable about
1: what you do at the business. And there's so much power in that. And especially if that's linked to the vision, I think ultimately um, you are going to have a strong upper hand in those financial conversations. So I think that's something you kind of have to go back to over and over. And you have to sort of say, okay, what are some things I'm willing to let go of? Because I know that ultimately I'm such a key part of of the formula that there's an undeniable power that I will always possess.
3: Yeah, I think one of the times that you know, I found myself in trouble with investors uh, when we were raising money a number of years ago was people kept telling me what Ovenly was, right? You know, everyone loves to tell you what your business is all the time. And I started losing sight of that vision of what we were building. We want to become the largest retail bakery chain in the country. And I started to not be taken as, as seriously as I should with investors. And the reason was I kind of lost my power because I lost focus. And once I re-jiggered and I went back and I said, no, this is what I'm doing, like it or not, if you like the opportunity, take it. If you don't like the opportunity, I'm not going to change the vision. I started getting funding. And I think that um, just speaking to what you're huh. saying, it's it there is such power in vision because so many people do get convinced that what they're doing isn't what they should be doing in business, and that's when you start losing your way. And so I think that it's a really important topic. I'm really excited to talk about it. I'm really excited also to talk a little bit about that transition from becoming an artisan to becoming a CEO, kind of that career change. So, Yeah, that's
1: a big one for you as well. So. Yeah,
3: totally. So really excited to have Christina on. Um, And let's get into it. Christina Tosi is our guest today.
1: We're so excited to have her. She is the founder and creative mastermind behind Milk Bar. She's a classically trained pastry chef who blends sophisticated culinary technique with really whimsical and outside-the-box nostalgic ingredients. She opened Milk Bar's doors back in 2008, and she's since just catapulted the brand into the spotlight, one of the most iconic American pastry chefs of this generation.
2: I'm Christina Tosi, and I am... 10 years in to building Milk Bar into this quirky, American-style bakery business, and I'm still figuring out what I'm making it as the world continues to change, which is my favorite part of the job.
1: That's cool. It's an ever-evolving process. It's not a stagnant yeah, thing. Yeah.
2: You know what it's like, right? Yeah. Like, what it was and what it meant when you first founded and started your business is different than what it is today. Well, one, it's different every day. But the vision and the mission and the drivers and the successes and the failures are different because I think if you build a business right in in all of the authentic ways, it's going to evolve as you as a person evolve, as the people around you, as the people in your organization that are helping you build it evolve. And I think that's the one thing when you try and hold on to what it should be too hard, oftentimes, at least for me, over the past ten years, when I've tried to do that, I miss the parts of what it needs to be and what it should be. And
1: totally, I think uh, it can. It almost feels like a big weight off the shoulders when you realize it can, you know, grow and evolve and
3: and change with you. Like it's okay, it does that. Yeah, and I think that we oftentimes are told not to change what we want because investors and people want to know what the end game is. But every day you're different. (laughs) And every, you know, you might have a big grand vision for what the very end point is, which is usually some sort of exit. Mm -hmm. But how you can get there is going to be an adventure. And there are opportunities that present themselves at any point. And I think the best part about being an entrepreneur and the most fun part is being able to pivot to take the right opportunities and to experiment and to take those risks.
2: Totally I think that that whole like if you go to raise, when you go to raise, do you go to raise is such an interesting intersection of the identity of the business. Because if you decide you need to take money from an outside resource to grow your business, then it's like make the sale at any cost or it's are you such a good salesperson that you're telling that financial resource, whatever that financial resource wants to hear, or whatever that financial resource needs to hear. And I think that's actually what I have found is when the identity crisis of your business is probably like at its um, most vulnerable state because it makes you question like, well, if I need money and this person has money, this person then somehow has power and I know what this person thinks of my business or I know what this person thinks that my business should be. And somehow it is very easy to then forget that you're the founder or you're the one running it. And it's what you say it is and it's what you want it to become. And the identity crisis of any business from startup to sale is... It's a really interesting topic, I think.
1: Entrepreneurship, is that something that was kind of always inside of you? Or do you think that it's an actual change that came from circumstances and opportunity and kind of a switch went off? If you look back, do you see signs of things that you can recognize differently now?
2: I remember um, I would... I begged my mom to buy me like a toy cash register because I'm I'm like a crazy math dork that sometimes Aaron and I joke about um, because she is as well. I love math. I love numbers. This concept of like being totally. a cashier was something I was always in
3: love with. I have a quick question. When you I mean, I, I have read that you love baking cookies, love cooking. You went to culinary school. You started working in Bully and for Wiley Dufresne and then for David Chang. In that time period while you were working your way up through these kitchens and into operations roles, did you start to think, I really want to do something on my own? When did that moment happen?
2: It wasn't until I was like trying to fast forward through the formal education of going to college where I felt in me, I remember going online and being like, how do I get, this is called entrepreneurship, I read about it, yeah. how can I get classes on it? <laughs> but then it was like, find entrepreneurship classes near Harrisonburg, Virginia. It was like zero, return results zero. <laughs> um, so I knew... I just, I had a sense, it grew into me where I understood that my hunger was, I knew that it was called entrepreneurship, but I didn't actually understand what it actually meant. You had this
3: desire, you knew you wanted your own bakery, but nonetheless, you started with culinary school and being a chef. Yeah. That is very different. Being an artisan is very different than running a business Mm -hmm. and being a CEO. So- how did you figure it out, or how are you figuring it out? How That's did you? How a, that that is love. <laughs> that is exactly what right. it is. How did? How are you learning to run a business, and how are you learning to lead?
2: Yeah, it's a never-ending pursuit. Um, I was raised by um, a mother who is an accountant, but it's like, I'm going to be the best accountant. I want to I want to make people happy and make them feel protected through their finances. Mm -hmm. Um, And and on top of that, I'm the only female accountant in this accounting firm of like good old boys. And so I'm going to go in and also show them what a woman in charge looks like Despite the fact that they don't see me being this person, and I'm going to win them over, and then I'm going to take over the business, and I'm going to help grow it, and then I'm going to we're going to merge. And I I basically I learned a lot of that drive and that determination and that pursuit through example and learning. Did your mom talk about that to you at the dinner table? Do you feel like you got it? Was definitely in the same way that like entrepreneurship was is Mm. now a thing people talk about. No, but when I look back, I have those like moments of childhood memory it all makes sense because Mm -hmm. it was all in the little stuff it was Mm. never in the big conversations and it was all in the little momentary things of like we're gonna run into the office and do this and like you're gonna play in the parking lot for 10 minutes while I go do that I think when I was old enough to have conversations with her and ask her and she would be more honest of like what are you doing today why are you wearing a dress to work? She's like, cause I'm not wearing big shoulder pad coats and like oversized <laughs> pants anymore. I'm not going to dress like I'm not, that's not my thing anymore. I'm going to do this now. Um, it was, it was through all the little stuff, but I chose to go to culinary school in New York cause I knew myself enough to know that I am, a, I'm a lifetime learner, but I like the formality of education and mm-hmm. that's part of what drives me to learn. And I knew that it was going to take a lot of confidence to do what mm-hmm. I wanted to do. And that confidence for me started first and foremost. And like, how do I go from home baker to pastry chef Mm -hmm. the patience of pursuit is an important one I learned from my mom and I applied over 10 years of working for other people so I worked for David Boulay I worked for Thomas Keller in the front of the house at per se for Mm. over a year like I I learned as much from as many people as possible before and from that you learn what works you learn what Mm-hmm. doesn't work at a Bed Bath & Beyond in Charlottesville, Virginia. I learned so much. That was my very first job. Mm-hmm. I learned exactly what kind of manager I didn't want to be yeah. on, like, learning day Learning what you don't two. want to be is so
3: important. And it's that, almost bigger. It's someplace. almost bigger. Yeah. <laughs>
2: being told how to be a great manager is, like, 5% of it. And learning how not to be a bad manager is, I would argue, 95%. And then on a day-to-day basis is being in love with the pursuit of, like, try something different every day. Read the emotion of your team, know how to measure like what you did yesterday and whether it worked and what you want to try a little different today and did it work. And there's a lot of like honest conversations with yourself. There's a lot of dialogue, inner dialogue or talking out loud when no one one is around, which is also... (laughs) No, totally.
1: I think that sounds very healthy. (laughs) Um, When you're the head honcho, you know, and that's like a whole different, okay, you're you're leading and learning Mm -hmm. at once. You know, I know a lot of people have conflicted feelings about about, uh, having formal mentors. Was it people who came in with money that kind of changed some of your ways of doing things?
2: I'd say for the first uh, three, four years of Milk Bar... I had to, I learned how to do everything and I learned very quickly that no one was gonna help me. I Mm. didn't have money. (laughs) So I didn't have the resource, I didn't have the financial resource to find the human capital resource. I was, Milk Bar was seven days a week from eight o'clock in the morning until two o'clock in the morning. And so I also didn't have the time. Um, to think about mentorship beyond the people already in my network, right. who were mostly chefs, because right. mm. that was the that was the original um, path that I put myself on. But I realized really quickly, as a lover of understanding how things work, that it was like, oh, you can't pay for a plumber today, so you're going to figure out how this works, and you're going to watch a general contractor and figure out he ch- how he changes a light switch because it can't be that hard, he's doing it in like 15 minutes, and raising a community of, interestingly enough, pastry cooks that also needed to become jack of all trades. And what I found in that, in looking through my own team that was like magnetized to this tiny little bakery for, I don't know, some beautifully magnificent reason that I could (laughs) not tell you, Um, not self-deprecating at all, but I found like a pastry cook who one day was like, ooh, I don't know about this like place that serves like warm cookies in a pizza box. They they say their numbers are like bigger than ours and I just don't believe it. And she was like a pastry cook that came out of pastry school that was at Kraft. And she just like started to want to have conversations more business and mm. operational mm-hmm. focused. So I was like, okay, come over here. Yeah you're actually not going to bake cookies today. right? You and I are going to look at the P&L together, or you and yeah. I are going to do payroll together. And so I started figuring out within my pastry cook team who had trade skills that maybe for them were even undiscovered hmm. and started developing in that in them. So part of it was just like forces of nature. How, yeah. do we, how do I leverage them because they're still willing to make the same amount of money I make, which is very little money. And it wasn't until raising money that I actually had the financial resource to bring in people that had a skill set that I will still challenge and develop under the walls of Milk Bar, but where they were actually, when they come in, in their day-to-day at Milk Bar, where they're pulling from experience – for other organizations, and it, but it wasn't. Which can be nec- there's
1: something to undo. Sometimes is a thing. It's well, not always. And I, I was not, say it's not
2: the best. Yeah, Sometimes it is yeah. the best, but yeah. sometimes it is like great. But Milk Bar is different. Right. Like what we do is we different. don't spend money like that, right. or
1: we don't. You know. So it's it's true. It's the right. difference between the homegrown and yeah.
2: yeah. And just because this works, just just because this worked for this brand doesn't right. mean that yeah. it is who we are and how we want to do it. But it wasn't until that financial resource and having a partner with finance it was like. Penny pinch. Right. right. But don't penny pinch so hard. Like, girlfriend, you need to change your mentality because you now have a financial resource and you need to leverage it. You can't be so used to. Working with so little, like now, you need to start trading on the fact that spending twenty percent more could bring you eighty percent more rewards. This is an exact conversation.
3: Yeah, I've had the exact same conversation. You can become so caught up in saving every penny that you can't see the forest for the trees. Mm -hmm. And we had the same issue where we've had some of our partners say, like, you need to start taking some risks because you can now. And bigger risk bigger reward be planful be strategic about it but people that maybe are outside of business don't see that as part of it and it's yeah. very scary and like then right when, when you get comfortable when then being, the money's all gone being told <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly <laughs> but being again. told to spend money after you've spent yeah. years and years and years not spending money is such an enormous shift and i you know that magical moment that magic that you created with the first store um Something that was a very hard transition for us was Agatha and I were in the kitchen for three, four years, Mm -hmm. and there was a magic around it. And we built a team that stayed with us for a very long time, but there had to become a point where we had to leave. Otherwise, the company was going to just be this smaller entity, and we wanted to grow it. So I'm wondering, when before even this transition to having raised money, was there a transition between you being in the kitchen and you being out of the kitchen and being the leader? And was it difficult? Because that was something in in our life cycle that was very hard.
2: Yeah, I mean, so many things happen, right? Like you self-identify, well, your apron is around you. That's like your, it's like your, your coat of armor. It's your superwoman cape. It's all of those things. And if you're doing it well, The most difficult thing to wrap your head around, the fact that doing it well actually means that one day you're not going to be doing it at all. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, the thing that you identify with, your comfort zone, where you believe you can impact the most change and where you're capturing that lightning in a bottle when you first start. All of a sudden, if you're doing it well, it all has to basically change. And... I think it. You go through a wave of emotions. I think my the first emotion I remember going through was. But I know my day. I know my day's worth, and I know and I know my own worth and pushing a day through a prep list. Like on kitchen terms, you have a prep list, and so you're like, I'm going to make the most impossibly Mm -hmm. long prep list. I'm going to crush it. This is as a team, as an entire Mm -hmm. battalion. This is the measure of our success today. We're going into it. This is what we're going to get done. This is how we're going to do it. Um. It's also so much easy, easier to lead and manage when you're there with people every single day. Training yep. is—it's training isn't even a concept because right. they are standing right next to you, and there's no onboarding. Onboarding isn't a word when you're an entrepreneur, right? Like everyone's doing it together. You're in the trenches together, and then all of a sudden, it gets so much more complicated. If you do all of that well, what no one tells you is that it gets fifty times more complicated. So that. That transition is real. How do you prepare for that transition? I think just knowing that it's going to happen is right. important. I tried to – I remember when that happened for me. I tried to then – I would do the like – I'm going to start and end every day in the kitchen. I know I can't be there in the middle of the day, so how do I How do I start and end so that people – Part of it is in, in the um, the weird emotional ego thing of like, but I'm used to being the first one at work and the last one at work. So that there's there are those intangible like leadership moments, teachable moments that don't ever have to go with words of like, but how do you make sure that your people feel like you're the one that is always the one. That is the backbone. And that is um, that is the foundation when everything else falls if, if and when everything else falls apart. And so I, that was a thing that do. I do. Even on the weekends, I would come by to say hi to everyone because I was like sometimes the smallest moments of rally mm-hmm. make a big difference. And if you see something that's not right, how do you how do you do that? And you have to figure out what the people that you're trusting to lead the parts of your company that you can't have that daily moment touch point with and make sure that they can be the truest extension of you as possible mm-hmm. right. while also at least for me because this is how I build my team while also allowing them to be who they are and, and how to do bring you... their
3: talents to the table yeah because yeah. that's
2: why you hired them right like you don't want a cut out of you you want someone that is going to honor you and drive your standards while also making it better the end goal is you said you do something great it means it's going to be
1: kind of shaken up and get harder but obviously you're working toward making it even greater right yeah. and that so that is and it obviously can happen yeah. you know if you if you kind of uh, lay it out right
2: it a 100% can happen it comes with patience it comes with understanding it becomes it comes i think with like the humor of like every day is going to be a roller coaster it comes with the fact that mistakes will be made it will it comes with the fact that no one is guess what no one's going to make your cookie as great as you no one's going to make that batch of ice cream as great as you Thank but you man if you Shut yeah up. it's true right <laughs> but like if someone right. can get that close yeah. is that good, you know like and then all of a sudden you start to You're not making concessions. You're starting to understand the world in in what in actually a more business woman minded sense, because all of a sudden you realize that what what is magical about where you got your start and what you first started really only matters in terms of like what you do next and how you choose to do it. right that's so true. And it's that's a humbling, on it, not just in it. Right. Yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. Will keep you up at <laughs> night feeling, but it's it's real and it's it's like the dirty part of entrepreneurship that those glossy magazines and TV <laughs> shows don't often t- talk about. It's so Wonder true. Wonder why not.
3: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. It's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smartwater. Vapor distilled for purity. Electrolytes for taste. Because we started talking about the hiring of people and how you didn't have the capital to hire the higher level folks mm-hmm. until you raise this last round. I want to. I want to hear about that last round. Mm. So, I think that raising money is one of the most opaque parts of being an entrepreneur. We Natasha and I have talked about how a lot of people come to us and they say, "How did you do it, Christina?" You mm-hmm. and I have talked about it. And so, how did you learn the language of investors? And I'm I'm curious, what was this most surprising part?
2: Okay, so first thing about myself in the context of this is I'm very stubborn and I like to learn things for myself. That is like, that's also the kind of learner that I am. So how I filled the shoes that I did for the first eight years was learning how to do every job. Like how do I, how am I the CFO? How am I the CMO? I had to, I learned everything. It was perfect because it's right when the world was changing Mm and I'm never the quickest learner or the smartest person in the room. But man, over time, I will crush. That was always the kind of student I was. So I learned that over eight years. So how did I learn the language of how to raise? I figured it out. I, I approached it the way I did everything else, which was like, okay, this is what's in front of me. I sometimes think I wonder whether I took too long to raise because with more financial resource, you can get more done. Did I play it safe for eight years? Is the question is is a question that I ask myself in all honesty. I guess what I can't change. I yeah. can't change that. In
1: theory, you're always going to give up more if you yeah. do it sooner. So well, yeah,
2: it all comes with yeah. good and bad yeah. to yeah. both sides of it. Um, I started reading. I mean, I I always read, but I started reading. As much as possible, doing as much research as possible, talking to as many humans as possible, in terms of like, what did you do? How did you raise? What was your approach? What's the good? What's the bad? Like asking the questions, getting my hands on as many things as possible. I made a list of like, I take money from my family. I go to a bank. I could go to a weird Silicon Valley bank. I, You know what I mean? Because there's, I could go to a soft bank. I, you know, like there's so many different ways that you can raise money. Do I take money from... A family fund. Do I take money from a wealthy individual? They take a VC, money from exactly, a private
3: equity firm. So many yeah. different
2: things. And what are the good? What's the good and the bad of that baseline? Plenty of people have plenty of opinions, and it's. A, I, I thought about it as I'm going to gather as much information, take as many meetings, and formulate my own opinions because I'm opinionated, and that's that's what I do. Yeah, I, I I try to <laughs> let. I think it's important to get people's opinions, but someone else's opinion is not your opinion. That is a tricky thing to remember in the raise process because it's a very vulnerable place. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You're in asking
3: less... people to give you lots of money. It's such a strange yeah. start but to the process. But you're giving them the biggest oh, you're opportunity. Them, yeah, of yeah. course. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. I am not say that yeah. again. <laughs> <top>. Yeah, <laughs> Investors want to invest, but it's a funny yeah. thing to be like, will you just give me some money? Yeah, Like a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. But money. the thing yeah, to
2: remember right. is... I'm offering you this opportunity that nobody else gets. And that's the part I think of raising that, is it's such a vulnerable place that you forget that your need doesn't eliminate the fact that you're in a position of power. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and investors, yeah. in
3: my experience, often try to make you feel like you're not in the position. Of, of course pa- they do. Power.
2: It's, it is now That's a power play. play. Yeah. yeah. So it's not just about money. It's about power. And this isn't a dirty thing. It's not because one person's good and the other person's bad. It's not good versus evil at all. This is just the dynamic of this part of business. Right. So go into it. Remember that
1: you have ultimately the most valuable thing because someone most often investors coming with money. What they're really understanding is money. Mm-hmm. You're understanding the business and the brand of the how to do and how to make it great,
3: especially in businesses like ours where yeah. we're really authentic brands that we built on our own and frankly cool brands yeah. that actually have potential. Yeah. Very. It's a Priceless.
2: little bit unicorny, think. you know. <laughs> yeah, true. it is. There are so many intangibles. I think when you go to raise, there's all these questions of like. How do people measure all of a sudden then your business gets measured, right? And how do people measure your business? Well, typically they start with your finances, whether it's your top line, whether it's your EBITDA. But there are also so many intangible parts of your business that are also important. How do you remain humble while also be aggressive in terms of how you think about your business and how you value it? Don't ever take a meeting. I don't care if it's with like your local Wells Fargo or Chase Bank or Citibank or whatever it is. Without knowing who you are, what your business is, what your vision for your business is. And even if that when someone asks, I think this is the hardest part as an entrepreneur, like what's your five year plan? You probably have never had to think about what your five-year plan is because you are just busy. You've been your only plan is to hustle and hustle hard because that's how you got Sell here. Sell more
3: cookies or right? ice cream, and right. so
2: you have to you have to know what you want out of it besides money. What are you going to do with the money? Everyone's going to ask that. And but- also,
1: by the way, everything you're going to give them projections and those ideas—they're, mm-hmm. I mean, they're made up. So you know they're It's such a part of the game. Make
3: it as real
1: as you wanna believe, but beyond that the five year plan it, the <laughs> so. five year
3: plan I think is the most laughable part of the race because again any real investor knows that businesses change year by year and even if you have a plan the plan will change and what's your an investment old, changes if you're a the heritage plan, business right? that, exactly yeah. it's really ends up being like well this is where i hope i'll be but
2: you can't say it like that no of course but it's like this unspoken is i know in but these it's, it's like this
3: unspoken part of these conversations is everyone knows that this will change yeah Confidence is confidence is queen. Confidence is queen. <laughs> I like that.
1: It's so but, true. And so
2: there is a little there's a game. There yeah. is it is a game. It's a real, game. but it is a game. Um in the context of this, the the most interesting thing that I was met with is I was told in some of these conversations, I wasn't told in the moment, I was told after the fact that I was difficult. And that made me laugh because I typically take any conversation with, you know, a smile and I, I like human interaction. I like to connect. And I just thought that was the funniest comment that anyone would have because I was like, I think that's so interesting that you find it difficult that. Just because I believe my business is worth this much, and you you might believe my business is worth something else, that the intersection (laughs) of that is difficult when, like, I'm easy to reach, I'm super communicative, I'm open, (laughs) um, and so I, I give that as an example because it's a grueling process, And it's stressful, but it's important to also let as much of it slide off your shoulders as possible because it can be all-consuming. It can make you question everything about your business and your identity and where you want to go and where people think you should be and what you should be and what you shouldn't be. It's
3: also a a second full-time job when you're already working 12 hours a day.
2: Yeah. And you got to get in and you got to be real about it and you got to remember to have that confidence but you also like need the soundboard or the after effect i would just go on really long runs and be like we're good do you know who you are girl okay you're good let it all go and laugh that laugh that you're difficult it's like i am difficult you're right i am not going to give away (laughs) a slice of this without a scoop of this (laughs) without me making sure that we're on the same page and that you're, you should prote- hold and that
3: you control. and your vision are protected. Yeah. That's perfect. That's yeah. a great, I think it's a compliment. So, no investment banker, right? This is something
2: that no. you kind of did. You, oh, you, no investment banker. You were the direct well, there, line of communication. There, uh, there, yeah. There are some in lovely case. investment bankers out there, but no. Yeah. I also, because I'm, because I'm stubborn, I wanted to run and manage the whole thing myself. Yeah. It, it, I was our first. Like delivery driver, I was our first porter and dishwasher. Too. I that's like a little bit of a badge of pride, which is obviously not reasonable as we scale. But I just thought if my job is to lead, um, I don't. I want to be hands on in this process. It's the first round. If we go, if we need to, to raise again or again or whatever happens in this future. I want to know how to lead someone else that might be managing the process in the future and the only way, for, I don't have that experience and the only way for me to get that experience is to do it myself. And I just believed in a series A, like you want you want the inroads with the founder. You want the inroads with the with the person whose vision it is. And I thought, I, I really believed that that, That direct relationship and outlet was a really big part of the story and a really big part of you're investing. If you're investing in Milk Bar, you're investing in me as a human. Totally. I'm not present across the table from you. Then what? That's right. not who. That's not who and what you're putting money into. So
3: tell us a little bit about how you structured the raise. Did you raise it as Milk Bar? Or did you raise it as under a parent company? Tell us a little bit about what you did.
2: So Milk Bar um, is owned in part by me and owned in part by Momofuku because they were my original partner. Dave gave me the seed money ten years ago to open the first Milk Bar. Milk Bar's business and operations is run independent of Momofuku for the last nine years i realized really quickly that using dave always offered his organization and team and i realized really quickly into it that running a bakery is wholly different than running a restaurant restaurant, empire and that his people would would always prioritize him first because like of course they should and that i would need to to I would need something different and I would need to be my own priority. But so then in the raise process, I was, I was grateful enough as well though to have Momofuku always as like a thought partner, right? Like if something, if, I don't know, if something happened, if a van broke down or, or, uh, Let's, hey, let's use the same insurance policy cap because we should be smart about like the value of our spend, or we should do deals that would leverage real estate or leverage raw ingredients because we're all under the same, like, quote unquote, family umbrella, which is great. And I think had a lot of people. Not fooled, but it, it was very strategic. So that was very helpful for me in growing the business, um, and also just having the Momofuku name means like every real estate developer is like, sure, little girl, we'll right. give you this piece of real estate. Do I ever get to meet David Chang? I'm like, <laughs> 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 no, I'm just joking. Maybe he comes in for ice cream, you know? Like, um, but in the from a raise process. Um, I had to yeah I have Momofuku as this partner right so the decisions that I I went out and did all of my research and decided what I wanted to do but I did need to make sure that Momofuku that my partner in it was okay with it I am very fortunate that Dave and the team that he's put together at Momofuku are like we believe in you what do you want to do with this if you can get that valuation girl go out and get it um and I would say more than anything, they are what they've always been, which is strong supporters, but mostly just kind of step to the side and let me do what I'm going to do.
3: So was your investment only into milk?
2: Or- oh, that, that's right. You asked that question. Um, so the investment was only into Milk Bar. Milk Bar has like a parent company, Momo Milk, and then each of the stores has their own entity Um because we would never sign 10. I mean, like basic business structure is such where you wouldn't sign 10 leases under one LLC. God forbid. Who knows what could happen? Mm-hmm. I mean, use your wildest imagination. I do every day. So I brought the money in through Milk Bar's parent company, which is Momo Milk. And Milk Bar's parent company is owned by me. It's owned by Momo Fuku, And now it's owned in part by RSE, um, which is Steve Ross's private equity group, who I raised the majority of that money from. Um, and then I I got everyone to agree to like carve out a little bit of a bucket for people for me that have been so incredibly helpful yeah in the process of being our supporters with no strings attached over time that I, I very much you get comfortable in raising and you're like I want you to get to Mm -hmm. have a piece of this. an ownership stake. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm going to make money for other people, I definitely, you should definitely get a little piece of that. And maybe
1: they're strategic, too, in their own way, and they're only continuing to add value. But
2: I think when you are raising in that capacity, you do have to think about, like, what's the structure? How much money am I going to raise at how much value? And what is that? How does that, like, pie chart break out from there? Um, And then you do have to do the research of what rights are reasonable to give away, what rights do I not want to give away? Um, I chose to form a board because I knew that uh, for myself and for my team that having the governance, having to provide that like quarterly report card and that quarterly pause was really, for me, was going to be really important in making sure that everyone was being measured properly and that we were never... So into something that we that we weren't forced to stop every quarter and then within that board you get a bunch of great thought partners of hey I'm thinking about doing this we're thinking about doing that you want to find as many people who will give you as many different and honest Mm -hmm. opinions as possible because as you grow, you and your brand are in so many more places than, than you can see and check and understand. And um, that like diversity of opinion and personality and vision is important.
1: So after doing the deal, are you still the majority stakeholder?
2: Yeah, I am. I'm running the business every day. And
1: would you say the structure... It was investor-friendly because the partners in the structure made that possible, that it's yeah. not only about the structure, but it's the who within good, that. That's a very good it point. It is.
2: I will say that in the process, it doesn't feel friendly, just to be <laughs> to Yeah, be yeah. Sure. no, We're let's queer. talk about it, yeah. It doesn't feel friendly because everyone is – no one's, like, grabbing for the biggest piece, but at the same time, everyone's advocating for themselves. So though mm-hmm. everyone has, like, the same goal – yeah. It is such an emotional part of like, well, I don't think you should have this much. I think I should have this much. I don't think you should have this much. I should have this much. But um, learning how to not shy away from those conversations because they are real. If you're going to do it, those are real conversations. Um, And... You you have to be able to advocate for yourself. I guess that's probably my biggest takeaway of it is. Of course, it's hard when you have Dave Chang as a partner, right? Like uh, it's it's also harder when you have all male partners and you're a female. Right. The all those things are realities. Um, I think the thing that I just always remind myself is I'm a female. I'm friendly. I like to be friendly. That is a choice that I make. Um, it's an important choice that I make every day. But I also have to remember the moment that it's time to stop smiling and to start being, start meeting intensity and dominance is when you stop yeah. smiling and when you start doing that because you so will true. you'll get steamrolled anywhere. I don't care. I don't care where it is. You will, man or woman. Um, I would say I could fee- feel more of the like gendered female come out of me if I hadn't – if I didn't know what I wanted to say over and over and over again. And I would go into every single meeting and be like – I am like sitting in the shortest chair. Like I gotta, I would rather wear my Canadian tuxedo. You know what I mean? Like uh You're you being think you about, though. You're yeah, wearing your Canadian tuxedo, I and that's great. It, but, Everyone,
3: Christina's in a Canadian <laughs> tuxedo. <casino. laughs> right. But there now. is yeah.
2: the like I'm a play to that. I'm a play to the fact that I'm a female. i am a play to the fact that you wanna be the financiers behind this crazy amazing company with a strong, confident female behind it. So I would say that I talked myself out of where I would otherwise be like gendered in the conversation and pivoted it and used it as much as possible because it is ownership it is a strength part of these conversations is power and dominance that's a reality that does not mean as a woman at least half
3: it's like half you have real numbers and half it's can you convince me? Yeah,
1: yeah. It's and believing so, in something. And yeah. so,
2: do, what do you need to do to convey that power? And maybe it's like go around the room and ask everyone else about their kids and be like, I'm yeah, dare, exactly. "I dare you My, to ask me, You know, whatever it is, right. do what you need to do. Uh, whatever yeah. it is, that's just part of preparation for for any kind of meeting and be. Be prepared. Just like having your notes is important, know who you want to be in it. If if it's your money, who would you give the money to? Maybe is the other is the other best takeaway that's a, that's tactic, great. right? I know who I am. I want to give my money to the person that that is like out after it, right? Yeah, and. And be and be that person. And speaking if they I don't invest found, in you, they are yeah, not yeah, the they're right not the people. right people.
1: And speaking of out and after it is was a lot of the dialogue around the end goal, the exit. The, is that is that how much of a play is that conversation or not?
2: So in Series A, uh, every business is different. In Series A, from a food business standpoint, depending on who you're taking money from typically there's like tiers most food businesses don't exit after series a so you're you're typically finding an investor that's helping you get to some like medium level scale so that they can perhaps sell off their equity to the next round of like typical food investors that will take you from B to C or B to sale. And one thing
3: I think a lot of food entrepreneurs don't know is that most people make their money as exits happen from other investors. Mm-hmm. So I, that's something that I was really surprised to learn is that in the food world, you build the business for a certain amount of time, you take it to Series A, build it again. You take it to a Series B where the Series B people buy out the Series A's people and mm-hmm. every time you go until maybe a big company It's more buys about you. the big transaction exactly. than yeah, necessarily the, trans- the day-to-day.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, We're a very non traditional food business standpoint. For us, like scale is not king at Milk Bar. Milk Bar's spirit is in like this discoverable quirk. We don't want to be Starbucks. We don't want a Milk Bar in every block. That's like the antithesis of the spirit that you should feel when you eat a compost cookie. So, thinking about our growth strategy was different than that because Milk Bar is many arms of its business. It has its storefronts. It has e-com. It has weddings. It has classes. And then beyond that, all of our other like lofty, exciting goals. And so in my five-year plan and in my 10-year plan, what was important to me was to not find an investor in Series A that just wanted to make it to Series B and then exit. Because my goal is not to just take it to Series B. B and then exit or to take it to series B and then sell it to a bigger investor who might like pour a big glass of water mm-hmm. over it is mm-hmm. the way that I would describe. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. That's how I was inspired mm-hmm. by food as a kid, by big food brands. But in thinking through what my options were, and I chose RSE because- They're not looking for the immediate exit. They're looking to create. Yeah, they're looking for a long game. They're looking to create something special. They're open-minded about bringing other investors in that can bring value add through that process. Um, But there is the question of what is the end game? Is the end game to own it outright? Is the end game to sell it to a great food company like Mondelez or Mars or Hershey's or what have you? They would take the milk bar business and make it into something incredible that would inspire like the me 25 years ago in the grocery store in Virginia in incredible amazing ways. Do we take it public? That's a real that's also a real thing. They all come with different strategies and different drivers and different forces. But I think you need to have at least a sense of what you might want to do in order to start to work backwards for like it would be so cool to sell to a big food company. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to sell to like McDonald's. I yeah. don't think there's going to be like a milk bar cafe next to the milk cafe and McDonald's yeah. Yeah. or the cafe and McDonald's. But once you start to really play the game of where you could see your brand going, then all of a sudden you start to go. If it were McDonald's, it'd be like, OK, well, what would McDonald's value in this? Hmm. Well, they don't need real estate for anyone that hasn't seen Founder, right? Like Their <laughs> business is real estate, so what would they want out of it? Well, are they trying to own food more? Are they trying to own dessert more? Maybe they're trying to own ice cream more. It seems like they're trying to own this sort of like all-day dining cafe. They're trying to take some market share away from Starbucks. And when you start to play that game, it can be really fun of – well, is that really what I want? But if that is what I want, then maybe I stop opening up more stores. So even in the conversation and context of raise, there are so many different ways to be creative about how you're raising, where you're raising, where that money goes to, who you're raising from, and not just who you're raising from now, but who you might want to raise from in the future or who you might want to sell to in the future. That's when your creative juices flow. It is a thrilling. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is a thrilling thing for the entrepreneur and you're in control so you can figure it out. What would you say is the
3: most important skill that you've learned as you've grown from a chef to a CEO? And if you could break down that skill in detail, if a listener wanted to to learn it, how would you break that down for us?
2: I'd say the most important skill I've learned is that though there is pride in learning and knowing how to do everything yourself the reality is being great being a great business person means that you're doing nothing yourself you're doing nothing yourself all you're doing is learning how to spot great talent and inspire them and give them a mission and support them and it is the weirdest strangest vacuum to be in, and the one you have to learn to be so great at in order to be successful.
1: Thank you. It's been amazing to chat with you, and you've just gone into so much of the nitty oh, gritty. So inspiring. We're so, like, you know, grateful personally as entrepreneurs and to the audience. And it's, yeah, it's phenomenal. Congratulations. Okay, you two,
2: thank, congratulations to you too. I'm very honored to be <laughs> one of many to come, I'm sure. And both of you as individuals and as women. And as entrepreneurs and as food and taste makers, inspire me and inspire my entire team. They are freaking out that I'm sitting in the same room oh as you today. Wow, so that makes me very, feel
3: really humbled. wonderful. <laughs> and thank you so much for coming <laughs> on. We so learned so much. And yeah. we'll have you back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Smart Water. Are you a podcast host and have after podcast dry mouth like I do? Well, guess what? Smart Water is perfect for that. Vapor distilled for purity. Electrolytes for hydration and perfect anytime you need a drink.